welcome to church this morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful to be with you here this morning. Uh, this has been a big weekend for us. I've definitely been a big weekend for me, for sure. This is now my fourth sermon this weekend, which is a, a maybe a record for me in terms of the number of sermons I've preached on one weekend. But it's been good. It's good. I'm, I'm a good tired. Uh, I was. Uh, it's interesting because Ken just sent a text earlier. It's a. It's a quote by Buck Par- or Burke Parsons. He. It's interesting. I, I think it was. I think it's a really good quote. That I just wanted to share with you guys. It says, uh, or he says, the local church is the only place on earth where little children, the elderly, families, singles, widows and adopted orphans from different ancestries, colors, and socioeconomic backgrounds come together to sing songs of victory, partake of one supper, and confess one faith. And here today, we're gonna, that's going to be demonstrated here today as you all come together. You know, there's, there's little children, there's the elderly. Uh, I wish uh, Miss, Miss Helene was here today, but that's okay. Uh, there's families, there's singles, there's widows, there's adopted or- orphans um, that coming from different ancestries. I mean, it's, this, is, this is the church, and I'm so thankful for it, and thankful to see the church flourish. I, I love the word flourish when it comes to the church. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, welcome to Grace Bible Church, and I'm thankful, always thankful to be here with you this morning or in, on Sunday morning with the Lord's Day. Most of you are aware, we've said it a couple of times, we had our 2024 winter retreat yesterday. If you weren't there, you missed a great time, and we missed you. Uh, Hopefully next year you guys can come and and enjoy that time together with us. We had a wonderful time of enjoying food and, and fellowship, and we had the added bonus of encouragement from God's Word. Uh, we took the time in, in, the, in the retreat to begin working through our to work partly through six, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Uh, we actually re- were able to record the sessions and we're going to try to op- upload them to the website uh, very soon. And I encourage you, if you weren't there, I encourage you to listen uh, to those messages when you, get, when you get the opportunity. Today's sermon is going to be the culmination of those sessions from Ephesians 6. I've work to make this a standalone sermon for those who couldn't make it to the retreat. Uh, so therefore, we have a, a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump into the text. And also, uh, at the end of this sermon, we're going to have, uh, as we always do, or, or mostly always do, I, I don't think it's ever been an exception, on the first day of the, of the month, we'd have uh, the Lord's table. And so I would prepare, ask you to be prepared for that, as well as we're going to have an elder installation uh, as soon as uh, communion is over. So I hope you're looking forward to that as well. Uh, we've, been, we've been looking forward to that for the last few months. So let's jump, into the, let's jump into it. Let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to, to come together on Sunday morning. We thank you for the fact that we are from all different walks of life, different situations, different ages. We, we just are so thankful that we can come together and sing songs of victory, that we can come together and ta- partake the Lord's table, that we can come together and be led by godly men who, who love you and who want nothing more than to, to please you and their leader leading of your people. 
We thank you and praise you for this uh, opportunity to hear your word. Father, I pray that it would not return void. I pray that you would use it. There would be fruit into the future that this church and beyond would, would Lord, um, benefit from your word being preached even today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's, uh, let's pick up in Ephesians 6.10. This is where we were yesterday, and uh, we're going to pick back up there. And like I said, we're going to try to make this, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of review so that you don't feel lost if you weren't there yesterday. Uh, Ephesians 6.10, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I should start by giving you some context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the first two chapters, Paul had taken, or took the time in his letter to encourage the church with the great hope of their calling in Christ. Ultimately, he reminded them that our Lord demonstrated the surpassing greatness of His power by raising Christ from the dead. And by raising for the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come or in the one to come. Amazingly, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.4, every Christian, we saw in chapter 1, Ephesians 1, that Christ has been raised up from the dead and has been seated at his right hand or at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. But in Ephesians 2.4, according to Paul, every Christian, everyone who has turned to Christ and put their faith in Christ, every Christian has been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you, you may not feel that way, You may not feel, I mean, here you are seated here in this church building, but ultimately, if you're in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I believe Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 summarizes the impact of the truths he taught in Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul writes to the Ephesians, I pray that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, well, enlightened about what, Paul? Enlightened about your salvation, the truth of the greatness of your salvation. He wanted them, their eyes to be enlightened with those things so that they would know what is the hope of his calling, what's going to happen in the future, what's the hope of eternity, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength. He wanted them to know He wanted them to know everything that they needed to know in order to be confident in living for Christ and and standing firm for the Lord. Church, I I I want you, I think you need to hear something incredibly profound. 
If, if the eyes of your heart have been enlightened to know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power, then you will act in faith. You will act in faith. You will not be afraid of failure because you know ultimately you may have small failures. You may fail in small ways, but you won't ultimately fail because Christ, and, because Christ is in you. Christ is living in you, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I, I, these people that say, can say that you can lose your salvation, it's craziness to me. Because you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, you can act in faith because you will not ever fail. You will believe God's promises and all that He will and can and has accomplished by His power. You won't be limited by the things that you see, the things that you can see. When you trust in worldly things, you, you become terrified. You become terrified to move forward in, in life unless the path is clear. If you are living a life of anxiety and worry right now, if you're sitting here and you're stressed about life, it's probably because you don't realize God's power. And it may very well be because you don't have God's power living within you. Those limitations, ultimately, that we talk about here didn't characterize Paul's life or his ministry, and he didn't want uh, the, the, the church at Ephesus to be terrified of life. He didn't want them to, to be terrified of these things because he wanted them to realize what they had in Christ. This truth is exactly what he explains in Ephesians 3. According to Paul, he had been given the stewardship of grace. Just listen to his words in Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. He is speaking of the gospel here, and he says, of which I've been made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. You, you see again, he's talking about how his power, the power of the Lord working uh, within him according to God's grace. And then he says in verse 8, this is Ephesians 3, 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news and the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which has for ages been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You see, Paul understood God's call on his life and he walked it out by faith. He did this even as he faced great hardship, hardship far greater than you and I have ever faced, and he did it even through satanic attacks. He knew and he understood what he said, was saying. Ultimately, the reason he was able to put one foot in front of the other is because he knew that Christ lived in him and he knew that he had been sealed by the Holy Spirit and he could not fail. In Ephesians 4 through 6, then he exhorted the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of this great calling with which they had been called. He wanted them to walk according to what God had done for them in, in, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. But Paul understood that demonic attacks, that satanic attacks, will occur when we walk the worthy walk. If you are walking according to God's ways, you will be attacked. That's, that's the truth. 
It, it worked its way out in the lives of Paul, life of Paul and the rest of the apostles and any faithful Christian who desires to live godly in this present age will be persecuted. And there is a spiritual aspect behind that persecution. There's evil behind that persecution. We can count on it. Therefore, because of that truth, uh, we need to be prepared for battle by recognizing that we have been given as Christians spiritual armor. We must stand firm when those attacks come. Now, I would argue that in Ephesians 6, 10-20, Paul finishes his letter by giving insight into how he has prepared for battle. He has shown them how he has prepared for battle, therefore he knows that that's how they ought to do it, and that's how you ought to do the same. Outside of Christ... Paul probably sustained more demonic attacks on, his, on himself, on his ministry, than any other Christian who has ever lived. And we would do well to listen to his wisdom, to listen to God's Word, the Word of God, in Ephesians 6, as he gives us critical instruction for how to withstand Satan's wicked schemes by putting on, by standing firm, and putting on the full armor of God. And I can tell you, I can tell you as a church that I think that the the next several years, whatever that is, we are going to be faced with more and more difficulties, and we're going to be faced with the fact that we need this critical armor, and we have to stand firm for the faith. So in in Ephesians 6.13, we're going to pick up there this morning, in Ephesians 6.13, Paul reiterated the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God and to be able to resist the evil of our day. I mean, we, we live in evil days, and so he's telling us that we need to be able to resist in those days. Now, obviously, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, but, but by principle, he's speaking to us as well. And in 6, 14 through 17, Ephesians 6, 14 through 17, Paul is going to give, or gives three, six, that is, critical pieces of armor for resisting now first, the first you must then, he's, he's, he wants you to prepare, is ultimately what he's saying. He wants you to prepare for this, this uh, attack that's going to come, or the series of ta- attacks that's going to come, and you must prepare for this battle by first girding yourself with the belt of truth, second by putting on the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness, by third, by shodding your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Fourth, by taking up the shield of faith. Fifth, by taking up the helmet of salvation. And sixth, by taking up the sword of the Spirit. Now, as we start looking this morning at this armor, I want to remind you that yesterday in the, in the, in the retreat, I dealt with the first three more fully. So, Today, I'm just going to go over them quickly. If you need more information, if you'd like to hear more, go back and look at, listen to those recordings when they're posted. So let's, look at, let's, let's briefly look at preparation number one. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.14. He says, Paul says in 6.14, stand firm. Now he says this, on several different occasions as you, as you look through these verses, 10 through 17. In addition, he told them to resist. So obviously, if, since he's repeated it so often in this passage, uh, obviously standing firm and resisting is a critical concept in Paul's mind. Look back at your text 
in verse 14. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, this isn't this, isn't, this is not just have, simply having knowledge of the truth, a simple knowledge of the truth. Paul's point here is that as a Christian, you need to be prepared with the, the truth of God's Word. Ultimately, the, this piece of armor and all the armor speaks of an attitude of being prepared, an attitude of readiness for battle, for the truth, so that when the attack comes, then we have the truth in us, in our hearts, in our minds. It's settled in, in us so that we are able to be prepared for the battle. We ultimately are not prepared uh, to battle for the truth until we have girded our loins, until we have readied ourselves for battle, until we have girded our loins with the truth. This means that we must then be fully prepared for, to battle for the truth. Now, to do this, we must study and know the truth. You can, you, if you're going to battle for the truth, you need to know the truth. So many people uh, spout off so many things on the internet and, and profess to know the truth. It's, it's crazy. It's, a, it's, like a, it's, like a, uh, it's like the Wild West out there if you listen to the people on the internet. Uh, ultimately, you need to study and know the truth of God's Word because you're going to be attacked. You're going to be assailed by, uh, by the, the enemy. I just read, I told the retreat yesterday, I just read this, and I don't, I, I don't know if this is the case. I don't know where they got their information, but they estimated that by 2025, 90% of the content that's being produced on the Internet will be AI. Think about that. Can we trust that? Especially when you consider that just a few days ago, Ken was sending me some stuff where you put in a text and, and you tell it to, to, to draw a picture and, and it, it, the pictures are so skewed into worldly thinking that, that it, doesn't even pay, it doesn't even look like what would be true. We can't trust it, right? What can we trust? We can trust the truth of God's Word. And so we need to study and know the truth so that when those things come to us, we can, we're able to say and understand that, that what we see on the internet doesn't match this, doesn't match the right understanding of this. Not only must we study and know the truth, we need to love the truth. We need to love the truth. We need to love the truth of God's Word. We need to be ones who are constantly in God's Word, constantly meditating on the truth of God's Word, constantly thinking about the truth of God's Word as we go about our business in the day. And we also, we need to, we must count the cost, and we need to make ourselves, we need to be prepared and ready to fight for the truth. You must be prepared to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You must be committed to the victory. This brings us to preparation number two. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Look back at your text in 614. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So I want you to notice something real quick. Stand firm. So we're standing firm having girded our loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is something that we do beforehand. Again, it speaks to preparation. It speaks to being ready, readiness. Now, righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness is the breastplate that protects us against the devastating blows of the enemy. Paul could be, talk, could be talking about the imputed righteousness that we are given at salvation, it is very true, we saw this yesterday, if you were there, that we have been given the very righteousness of Christ. We have been justified by His righteousness because we are in Him. 
In Romans 3.22, Paul says that the righteousness of God is applied to those who believe or have faith in Jesus Christ. He says we are given the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all, all those who believe, for there is no distinction. But I believe, and then it says, for all have fallen short, fall short of the glory of God, that, the, and that, that, that's that verse, 3.23. But I believe he has, something in, he has something different in mind here in Ephesians 6. It is true that we are ultimately protected by God's righteousness from demonic attack. But it is also true that we can live in a fleshly way which gives Satan the opportunity to attack us. Here in Ephesians 14, I would argue that the breastplate of righteousness refers to righteous or holy living that doesn't, doesn't give Satan this opportunity to attack us effectively. Uh, these weaknesses, these sinful tendencies that we have, uh, the sin that we live in uh, gives the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the enemy this opportunity to attack us at that very area. If you're living in sin today, or if you're living and you know that you're living, you're not living according to His truth, and you're you're struggling in weakness. You have lost that that shield that uh, you you no longer have that shield that allows you to to be protected. You see that righteousness, walking in righteousness, is our shield. Well, how do I walk in righteousness? Well, I obey Christ. How do I obey Christ? Well, I I know His Word. I have His Word dwelling in me. How do I how do I know that? Because I'm prayerful and I'm always praying to the Lord that He would show me His way. Now you may you may argue, and it, and I can understand that, that Paul is actually referring to imputed righteousness here, the righteousness that we're imputed at salvation. But here's what I'll tell you: if you live, if you actually have the righteousness of God, if you actually have that righteousness imputed to you, then you ought to live according to that very righteousness, right? Ultimately, we end up at the same place. If, if he's talking about imputed righteousness, then we ought to be living according to that imputed righteousness, but ultimately, we end up at the same place because, because if, I'm, if Paul is calling me to live according to that righteousness, then it's ultimately the same thing. Our justification by Christ's righteousness would ultimately, should ultimately, must ultimately result in righteous living before Him unless we were walking in sin. In the words of Paul in Romans 6, 11-13, he says this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust." And do not go on presenting your members as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. It's exactly the same thing. This leads us to preparation number three. Preparation number three, shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Look at your Bibles back in Ephesians 6.15. Having shod... Your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, you should note, and my outline actually doesn't show this, but the text actually doesn't say we are to shod our feet with the gospel. But Paul says clearly we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel. In our final session yesterday, we found that he is speaking of the believer's readiness or preparation with the gospel. 
You see, when Satan attacks us, when Satan attacks you, you are to be prepared to withstand his attacks. And the question is, what are you to be prepared with? Ultimately, we need the full armor of God. But part of that, part of that full armor is having the gospel, understanding the gospel, preaching the gospel to your own hearts. We must acknowledge that the gospel message is first and foremost for us an encouragement to our own hearts. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes in 1.16, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Paul says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, For in it. For in it. What, in what, Paul? In the, in the gospel, right? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So from the beginning of my Christian life until the very end, I am living, I, the, the righteousness of God is revealed to me by the gospel from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. In other words, true faith isn't just applied at the time of salvation. True faith endures to the end. You see, as Christians, if you're, if you're truly a Christian, it's not just faith at the beginning. It's not just faith in the middle. It's faith all the way to the end, right? We live by faith in Christ. We live uh, by true faith. What do we have faith in? What is our faith in? What are we actually having have faith in? And that is the, the truth of the gospel. Therefore, the righteous man shall live by faith in the truth of the gospel message. So when Satan attacks us, and he will, uh, well, I'm not, actually, I'm not big enough for Satan to attack me. It's one of his little minions, but you get the point. And by, by, by him, attack, by the little minion attacking me, I guess I could say Satan is. But when, when we're attacked demonically, when we're attacked, attacked spiritually, we can stand firm on the good news of Christ's sinless life sin-atoning death, and Christ's resurrection in power, because He has won our, or the righteousness that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. He has won that righteousness, and therefore I live by faith in His righteousness. Now this leads us to the fourth preparation. Now this is, this morning, the first piece of armor that we didn't cover at the retreat. So this is new material. Preparation number four, take up the shield of faith. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.16. Paul writes, In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, this phrase, in addition to all, could be translated above all. Ultimately, Paul literally says, in everything. So after describing the various pieces of armor up until this point, he says, above all. Or in everything. The Christian is to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and he is to shod uh, his feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And these, these things are, are part of the armor, but, and, but our faith protects all these things, ultimately is what Paul is saying. That, so we have these, this armor that's on us, we have these things that are there, but then our faith is a shield, ultimately. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, He says, but though these are all armor, yet faith is an armor for his armor. So all these things that that we've already talked about are armor, yet faith is the armor for the armor. It is not only a defense for him, but a defense for his defenses. 
Thus faith not only shields the man, but shields his graces too, end quote. That was Charles Spurgeon. In other words, the armor he has described up until now is not fully protected and is not therefore complete without taking up the shield of faith. Now, when, we, when you think of this, this shield, some, something like Captain America's round shield might come to mind, but you know, something fairly small and round, you know, the Captain America's shield he uses here. But Paul is not referring ultimately to, to that type of uh, shield in this context. Different kinds of shields were used by soldiers in Paul's day, but this is a special reference to a large shield, a type of large shield which was sometimes utilized. The this word translated shield sometimes signified a door, if you get a picture of a door. With these shields, uh, because these shields were, not, were as large as a door, now, the shields were slightly curved as well. Therefore, they were able to deflect uh, attacks without transferring the full force of the assault to the man holding the shield. You get the point. Uh, we used to, in football, we used to have these, these pads, and the players would come and hit the pads, and you wouldn't, you know, you're not taking the full force of their hit with the pad, and so it's like that, that football pad, that shield, but this is, a, this is obviously a metal shield that is able to withstand great force. They were large enough to cover or shield the man entirely. In the same way, we can understand our faith covers the entirety of our body like a shield, Clearly, the main idea is that faith, like a shield, protects us against the attacks of the enemy. In Psalm 512, uh, King David proclaimed, For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. Therefore, as, as the shield protected the entire soldier, faith protects the entire Christian by enveloping us all around. We are protected against all the enemy's fiery missiles, no matter where they're aimed against us. We should note that it's the shield which receives most of the blows from the enemy. Uh, Truthfully, our faith, like a shield, receives the blows which are meant for us, meant for the man himself. According to Peter in 1 Peter 1.7, as we are distressed by various trials, it is the genuineness of our faith which carries, carries us through when tested by fire. It's the genuineness of that faith. He says in, verse, in, in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire. Well, what's being tested? Your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In James 1, 3, James says that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and it produces endurance knowing that, the, he says also, knowing that the testing of faith brings about, uh, I'm sorry, produces endurance, but it, it brings about perseverance. In other words, our genuine faith protects us and causes us to persevere. Uh, you could even say, the greater our faith, the greater it will be tested, John Newton has said, faith upholds the Christian in all trials. Faith upholds the Christian in all trials. George Mueller, a great man of faith, once said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means. As I say, and say it deliberately, 
trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. Did, you get, did y'all get that? The trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of our faith, of faith. And ultimately, I, I see so many, and I do this myself, when something terrible happens, when something happens that is so hard, we, we tend to go, oh, Lord, what are you doing? Why aren't you not with me anymore? But ultimately, it's the faith that carries us through those things. And as, he, as we have faith, the more faith that we have, the, the more tested that, that faith becomes and the more protected that we are. Charles Spurgeon eloquently states, Let the soldier be ready when war comes. Let him expect the conflict as a part and necessary consequence of his profession. But be armed with faith. It receives the blows. The poor shield is knocked and hammered and battered like a penthouse exposed in the time of a storm. Blow after blow comes rattling upon it. And though it turns death aside, yet the shield has compelled itself to bear the cut and the thrust so must our faith do. It must be cut at. It must bear the blows. And what's amazing about your faith is the more blows it bears, the stronger it becomes. But that's the idea of testing. And in order for our faith to be effective, it needs to be strong. And strong faith rests solely on the finished work of Christ. It rests solely on the promises of God, the hope that we find in Christ. Ultimately, we saw those in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, here's the the warning. We can't mix confidence in self or any flesh with faith in Christ. can't be mixed. So many times we, we have confidence in our own selves and our own abilities. So many times we have confidence in what we can do, but yet our faith must be wholly and entirely upon Christ. It is in Him that faith is actually useful. He alone forges our shield of faith. He alone brings trials into your life to strengthen your faith. He alone determines its measure. As we saw earlier, Paul's faith rested solely on the truth of the gospel. Our our faith, if you are in Christ, your faith must also rest solely on the truth of God's Word and on the truth of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith then must be shaped by the truth of God's Word. Again, in Charles Spurgeon, who's incredibly helpful with these things, he says this, then you must see to it that your faith is that which rest only upon the truth. For if there be any error or false notion in fashioning it, that shall be a joint in it. Get the point? A joint in it in which a spear can pierce. You must take care that your faith is agreeable to God's Word, that you depend upon the true and real promises, upon the sure word of testimony, and not upon the fictions and factions or fancies, that is, of and dreams of men. So let me say that again. Not upon the fictions and fancies and dreams of men, end quote. Our faith, our faith must be tested and strengthened by the heat of trial, by the heat of suffering, by the heat of difficulty. And this is a difficult truth that many Christians want to avoid at all cost. Many Christians, many of us want to run away when the going gets tough. But when the going gets tough, the true faith of the Christian proves to be much tougher. The shield of faith 
proves to stand, uh, stand against the blows of the enemy. Now, there's something else about the shield of faith. Look back at your text in verse 16. The shield taking up the shield, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Roman soldier's shield was covered with thick leather in many cases. Sometimes this leather was saturated with oil <coughs> that, would, <coughs> that would extinguish the fair, fiery arrows of the enemy. Ancient armies typically used small arrows which were tipped with uh, material dipped in a flammable spirit. And when shot, they would blaze as they flew through the air, targeting the tents and houses and timber walls of, of their enemy's reinforcement. In some cases, these arrows' tips were dipped in poison. They would call these fiery art, uh, darts and because they, when they touched the, or grazed the skin, they injected this fiery poison into the veins. The soldier on the front line required a shield to protect himself from these arrows and from the blows of the enemy. Unfortunately, he kept himself, uh, he kept himself from being hit by a death blow, death blow yet, it was, yet he, he had been... Let me say that again. Unfortunately, if he kept himself from being hit by a death blow, yet was struck by a fiery arrow, then he would be set on fire. Therefore, the shield not only protected him from the blows of the enemy, it protected him from the fires and the poisons of these arrows. Now, I would argue that these fiery arrows of flame and poison symbolizes the, the temptation which the enemy lofts our way. Now, these fiery arrows could be temptations to sin such as lust and sexual impurity, such as lying, such as stealing uh, or greed, such as pride and vanity, such as anger, malice, and murder, such as jealousy and covetousness. These fiery arrows of temptation are an accepted part of this broken system of the world. And I would also argue that, that these arrows could also be accusations against the believer. In Revelation 12.10, the Apostle Paul says that Satan is the accuser who accuses the brethren before our God day and night. And so considering these shields and their ability to absorb and put out these fiery arrows, our faith has quenching power. Our faith sees these arrows of temptations coming across the blasphemy, the insinuation lofted against us with all its poison and fire, and it snuffs them out. It renders them completely ineffective. We're fully protected from these dangerous temptations and deadly accusations by our faith in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, Oh, it is wonderful how God sometimes enables His people to live in the midst of temptations and tribulations as though they had none of them. I believe that some of the martyrs, when they were burning in the fire, suffered hardly any pain because the joy and peace which God gave them delivered them from the vehement heat. That armor of faith. That armor of faith. Before we leave this piece of armor, I want you to consider one other aspect. In our individualistic society and in individualistic church, the way it is today, we tend to look at these texts from a personal point of view. We tend to look at them as what's going on with us. But I would argue that Paul had the whole church of Ephesus in mind as he penned this text. According 
to historians, the Roman military had a very effective tactic of using these large shields. Uh, when Romans, Rome's enemies began firing arrows at the, at the soldiers, they would come together to form a rectangular formation. This was called uh, the tortoise formation. Testudo, I think, is what it's called. Um, the soldiers around the perimeters used their seals to, to create this protective wall so while those inside the perimeter were able to raise their shields above their heads to protect everyone from the flaming arrows, this, this formidable, formidable formation was incredibly difficult to penetrate with these flaming arrows. In effect, as they joined together as one, they were protected as one. They were protected by their unity. And you may recall Paul's reminder in Ephesians 4, 4-5 through 5, that there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Beloved, the local church is called to be one in Christ. We are called to come together, and when we join our shields of faith together to strengthen one another, we become a formidable defense against the flaming arrows of the enemy. Must remember as we prepare for battle that we are not alone. We are not alone. We're not alone as a church, and we're certainly not alone as individuals unless you choose to go out on your own. And when you do, you are susceptible to the enemy's flaming arrows. We are to win. It, can only, it will be only by putting our faith in Jesus Christ standing side by side so that we will triumph against the enemy. Now let's look at the fifth piece of armor. Take up the helmet of salvation. Preparation 5, take up the helmet of salvation. Look at your text. Paul writes, and also received the helmet of salvation. Roman <clears throat> soldiers had helmets which protected their heads from grave injury in battle. They especially needed protection <clears throat> from the broadsword, which was commonly used in Paul's day. The sword was a large double-edged sword that measured three or four feet long. It, it was commonly used by soldiers on horseback, the, the Roman cavalry. These soldiers would take aim at the heads of, of the foot soldiers trying to split their skull or, or actually fully decapitate them. Many of the helmets were made of thick leather covered with metal plates while some were heavy molded or beaten metal. They usually had side pieces that came down uh, around the cheeks to perfect, protect the, the face. These helmets protected the soldier from a crushing blow to the head that brought instant death on the battlefield. Now as we Move forward, we need to keep the type of, of helmet in, in mind. The, the type of helmet, look, look back at your text in verse 17. He says, it is the helmet of salvation. It's the helmet of salvation. The, there are a few a aspects of salvation that we need to recognize here. First, there is justification. This is God's gracious act to forgive our sins and declare us righteousness through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul writes in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, justification is a one-time act by which God declares us to be righteous in his sight by applying Christ's righteousness to the, to the sinner. Every true believer has been justified and remains so forever. We, we have taught that already. Yet, back in Ephesians 6.17, I don't think that Paul is speaking specifically of justification. 
The only ones who can take up God's armor have been already have already been justified by Christ. They have been forgiven of their sins and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And therefore, I don't think Paul is referring to this one-time act of justification. Yes, yet I do think he is referring to the effect of it. In Ephesians 1:7, Paul declared, "In him we have Redemption through, our, through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. In verse one, chapter 1, verse 7, he's, he's speaking of justification. We have been justified by the blood or through the blood of Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 13, though, he says, In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So after hearing the message of the truth, the gospel, the good news, you believed and you were saved and you were also sealed. Well, what does it mean to be sealed? It means that you are secured by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus affirmed this truth in John 10, 26-29. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Beloved, the true believer, according to Paul, according to Jesus, the true believer is absolutely secure in Christ. You cannot lose your salvation if you are truly in Christ. Paul captures this beautiful truth in Romans 8.29. He says, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that, they, that he would be uh, for, firstborn among many brothers. And he says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And he's speaking in, in the past tense that it's already happened. As if everyone who becomes a believer, all of these things are true in Christ. This truth led him to declare in Romans 8, 38, 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing can separate you. Now let me tie this back to the helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. Our enemy seeks to land fatal blows against God's elect, but he will never connect no matter how hard he tries. He will never be able to connect because the believer has been supernaturally protected. And here's the, but here's the truth. We have to take up this helmet of salvation. We have to live according to the truth that we cannot be struck by a fatal blow from the enemy. Even the martyrs who, went, who saw their death because of standing for Christ, even them, where are they at today? They're living with Christ in eternity, right? Living with this understanding frees us to serve our Lord without fear. You, you have no fear. Can you imagine standing on the battleground having no fear that, that, uh, that the enemy can strike a fatal blow? That's exactly how you should live your life, without fear. 
We have, a, we have assurance of salvation. We have the future hope of glorification. We can take heart. We are in Christ, and we can never be snatched away from Him. We can be courageous while the enemy batters us with his schemes. He cannot ever, ever, ever strike the fatal blow. You see, you're a spiritual immortal. Not only immortal... Your future glorification has been sealed and it's been signed, sealed, and is yet to be delivered, but it's a guarantee. Ultimately, it's been delivered. That's what Paul is saying back in Romans 8. In the words of Martin Luther, we just sang it today the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. No matter how bad it gets in this life, we know that God will not allow a crushing blow. We know this because Christ has already struck the fatal blow, right? Christ has already struck that fatal blow, the fatal blow on our enemy. He did this at the cross when He defeated our enemy. This brings us to the final preparation. Final preparation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Sword, this word is trans, translated sword refers to a, a Roman gladius. This is a short sword, uh, about two feet long, used for close hand-to-hand combat. Up until now, each, each piece of armor has been solely used for defensive purposes. This is the only weapon that clearly could be used for offensive or defensive purposes, but these, these uh, swords could be incredibly lethal if expertly wielded. Paul uses this word two other times in Romans 8, 35 and 13, 4. In both cases, he's referring to the deadliness of the physical sword. According to John 18, 10, this is the type of sword that Peter used to cut off Malchus's ear. In 26, 47, it's the type of sword that the crowd was carrying when Judas, was, when Judas betrayed Jesus. In Acts 12, 2, it's the type of weapon used to martyr uh, uh, John's brother, John's brother James. Yeah. And the writer of Hebrews uses the same word twice in Hebrews four twelve. It says the word of God is shar- sharper than any two edged sword. In Hebrews eleven thirty seven, uh, the author says that some of of the heroes of the faith were put to get put to death by this type of sword. As we can see from these references, it's, it's referred, referred several times in the New Testament, this weapon was probably or was quite common in Paul's world. A Roman soldier wouldn't have left his home without his weapon, without his sword at his side. Just as today's soldier or, or policeman would have his sidearm at all times, the, the soldier in, in Paul's day would have his sword. Notice the text says, the sword of the spirits. If we see this as adjectival, this is not a physical sword, but a spiritual one. But we could translate his description as the sword given by the Holy Spirit or given by the Spirit. Considering the witness of Scripture, I would lean toward that being Paul's point. Uh, the Word of God is given uh, by the, the, the Holy Spirit. So it's the, the Word of God from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Second Peter 3.16 described the Word as being inspired by God or literally God-breathed breathed out by the Spirit. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter described this inspiration as men being moved by what? By who? The Holy Spirit who spoke from God. 
Having said that, it's certainly a spiritual weapon. The Word of God is a spiritual weapon suited for spiritual warfare. This, Paul makes this very point in 2 Corinthians 10, 10 in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, we are mere men who walk around like everyone else. We are humans who are no different than anyone else, yet we do not war as mere men. We don't use the human weapons of war. We, we, we use the, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're, according to Paul in Second Corinthians 10.4, but they are divinely powerful for tearing down of strongholds. Uh, Paul doesn't, doesn't specifically refer to, to the Word of God as the weapons of our warfare, but I would argue that he is referring to Scripture, the Word of God. If that's the case, then Paul is saying that God's Word is divinely powerful for the annihilation of strongholds of demonic forces. So when demonic forces come against us, we fight with the sword of the Spirit. This phrase, divinely powerful, connects us back to 1 Peter one twenty one and 2 Timothy 3.16, which teach that, God, that God's Word is inspired by, by God as men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is the sword of the spirits. Uh, the weapon of Scripture is divinely powerful for the destruction of all our enemies' fortresses. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, it is something more than just a small sword. This is a weapon powerful enough to destroy a fortress. The, and the word there means just that, a massive stone fortress. He's talking about the, the second, second Corinthians 10, by the way. We assault these fortresses not with human weapons, but with weapons that are not even a part of the flesh, but rather have as their source and their power divine character. And as a result, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. End quote. So when the world brings its lies to us, we are using the sword of the Spirit to, to bring down those lies. This is our weapon that is divinely given to us, that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is how we fight the enemy with that uh, very weapon. And as you can see, the Word of God is powerful. And when yielded in the right, wielded that, that, that is in the right way, it can destroy our enemy's plans. It can confront our enemy's lies. It can bring them down. It does this because God's word is truth. It can challenge evil philosophies which stand against God and his people. And it can do this because the Bible clearly lays out God's purposes, which he brings about according to his will. In the words of our Lord Jesus, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Uh, thy word is the only thing, God's word is the only thing that we can use to fight against our enemy, Satan. In other words, our weapon is the truth of God's word. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, the weapon is clearly the truth because the only thing that displaces error is truth. The only thing that smashes what is raised up against the knowledge of God is the true knowledge of God. The only way to bring down lies and deceptions, these ideologies, these anti-God concepts, and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is to bring the truth. That is, that's, true, that's found in God's Word, so it is a formidable weapon that we have. You, if you hold the Word of God, if you know the Word of God, if you've girded your loins with the truth, if you're prepared to, uh, to 
fight for the truth, you have a mighty weapon in your hand. And we need to recognize that the devil uses his lies to deceive us. In John 8.44, Jesus says, you are of your, speaking to the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm not sure exactly who he's speaking to here, but the religious authorities, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from, from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And we can see the pattern of the devil's deceptions from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave Adam permission to eat from every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In Genesis 3, you may recall that Satan attacked by causing the woman and ultimately the man to doubt the goodness of God's Word. He subtly twisted God's word to make his commands look burdensome and oppressive. He promised them good things if they would disobey God. And sadly, the first Adam trusted those words of the serpent and trusted his wife and he ate from the fruit, plunging all of us into the whole of humanity into sin. But you may remember the triumphant second Adam in Matthew chapter 4 when tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Uh, Satan used the same bag of tricks and each of these three temptations were similar to his temptation in the garden. For example, in Matthew 4.3, Matthew tells us that, that he came to the, our Lord and said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones uh, become bread. Uh, the devil knew, that, knew Jesus. He knew that he was the Son of God. What was he ultimately doing? He was tempting Jesus in his humanity, and he wanted to see what Jesus' response would be. And when Satan tempted him, when Satan challenged him, what did our Lord do? He quoted the Word of God quoted the Word of God. He quoted and used the sword of the Spirit. Notice he says, if, you, if you're in Matthew 4, if you've turned over there, you can see that it says, he says, it is written. He's appealing directly to Scripture to counteract the devil's lies. And with this quote, he is affirming that we can trust our Heavenly Father to care for us. We don't have, to, we don't have time to look at it closely, but if, if you do, you will see it's a trifecta that Jesus combat, combats all three temptations by what? By appealing and using the sword of the Spirit, by using God's Word. Even when the devil twists Scripture, our Lord corrects him with the correct interpretation. I would argue that is Paul's point back in Ephesians 6.17, that we are to take up the sword of the spirits, receive the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we're to use it the same way our Lord did. As we wrap up these, these verses, Ephesians 6.10-17, <clears throat> I pray, my hope is that you will consider the importance of understanding the spiritual armor so that you can stand firm when our enemy attacks. Yesterday, if you were at the retreat, I began by warning that the enemy will attack us if we're faithful. He will attack us when we are faithful. He will attack any church that is faithfully preaching and teaching God's Word. The church at Ephesus lived in the shadow of, of this mighty temple, the temple of Artemis or Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a spiritual stronghold for the demonic world of Paul's day. It was also strategically located for the spread of the gospel and the protection of the truth. Clearly from that 
from the time that the church at Ephesus was planted, the demonic realm, we saw this yesterday in session one, the demonic realm continually attacked them. Here's what I'll tell you. Grace Bible Church stands in the shadow of one of the great universities of our time. I believe that universities are also great spiritual strongholds, demonic strongholds of our day. We also are strategically located in a place in this area where many people come for a short time and then they leave to go elsewhere. We need to recognize, as a body of Christ here in Gainesville, we need to recognize the strategic importance, the the important role this little church can play in protecting the truth and preaching the gospel. If we are faithful, if we continue to be faithful, God will use us in mighty ways. But if we are faithful, we will be spiritually attacked in the coming decades. Here's what I want my prayer for us and my prayer for you. And it's exactly the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. My prayer for you is finally, be strong in the Lord and the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the, the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Oh Lord, we thank you this, this morning or early afternoon now. We praise you. Lord, I pray that our church, as we finish up this series on the armor of God and this series over the last few weeks on the church and the importance of the church, Lord, I pray that the reality of the spiritual darkness, the reality of the attack, spiritual attacks that have come and will continue to come, the reality of needing to stand firm, the reality that the answer is found not in politics, not in human government, but in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the answer is found in seeing seeing many snatched from the fire, seeing people saved miraculously, uh, rescued from the domain of darkness. I do pray that you would use the light of Grace Bible Church, that we would be a light on the hill, that we would be a light in this dark place so that we might proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might uh, proclaim His holy and mighty name, and that many would come to know you. Lord, I pray that you would use this church in mighty ways over the next few decades. Lord, as long as you tarry, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified by this church and that the fruit of this weekend, we would see that fruit grow and be harvested in many years to come. In Christ's name, amen.